Welcome to the Educator Ignited Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Palmas, a wife, mom, educator, and learner addict. I am obsessed with all things improving education, and this podcast is all about proving what's possible in education. If you are hungry to learn about and be inspired by ways in which educators are doing things out of the box, altering the status quo, then you are tuning into the right podcast. We talk to guests who are trailblazers on a transformative journey to change the educational system, extending their impact beyond the boundaries of the classroom. Educators Ignited embodies our shared commitment to igniting a fire within each and every educator, empowering our education community to become catalysts for change. Through the Educators Ignited podcast, we will continue to bring you inspiring stories, thought-provoking discussions, and practical strategies to empower educators worldwide Together, we will light the way for a new era of education where students thrive and teachers are catalysts for innovation. I am humbled today to be in the presence of this just giant in education who I am just spent 20 some odd minutes talking to, have been looking up and researching and basically cyber stalking for the last couple months as I've been gearing up for this amazing conversation. But with us today is AJ Krebel, who is an author, a consultant, an activist, an advocate who is doing extraordinary work in education and truly proving what is possible from the standpoint of how do we better govern through the board lens and how do we actually instill better practices in our institutions, our schools that really allow our students to become the best versions of themselves. And AJ's saying is student outcomes don't change until the adult behaviors change. And so with that, he is doing work that is helping the adults and students' lives become better and better. And again, just proving what is possible in education, reframing the way in which education needs to be and taking away the things that don't help us move forward. And so with all of that, AJ, just again, humbled. I want to talk about restorative practices. I want to talk about school board governance. I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about all the amazing ideas that are going through your mind. But first, would love to just kick it over to you, have you introduce yourself and share what has been your journey in education to bring you to where you are and what you're doing today. Hey, it's really great to be in conversation with you today, Kelly. Thank you for that over-generous introduction. So my journey is probably like a lot of folks' journey uh, by happenstance, more so than by intention. And that's both with my journey with parenting of just fumbling around and figuring out what is it the children in my household need in order to be successful and how does that interact with how the children in other people's households need to be successful, quickly figure out that my kid's not going to be as successful, the kids around him are not successful. And then some parenting lens that I've got to not only advocate for my own child, but advocate for everyone else's child as well. That there's just this interconnectedness between all of our children and that we have to create systems to work for all. It's not enough to just worry about, I'm gonna get me, I'm gonna get mine and that's gonna work out. It's probably just not gonna work out. But then there's also the the instructional side, where there's the privilege of teaching middle school students computer programming or teaching restorative practices to middle and high schools, just an opportunity to 
see what young people are capable of, give them an opportunity to blow you away with their, with their greatness. And so both of those paths come together in the work that I do now. And, and all that is centered around, how do we continuously improve? How do we continuously make the institutions that serve our children a little bit better, a little bit better every day, whether that's from a culture and climate perspective, and that's my restorative practices work from an instructional perspective. It's the coaching system work that we're creating here in DeSoto, or whether that's the governance work with the coaching that is school boards that inspires them to be more intensely focused on improving student outcomes. But uh, all of it is iterations on the same things. What are we going to do to continuously improve the quality of instruction that students are experiencing day in and day out in the classroom, and recognizing that our access to that is changed in adult behavior? Thank you so much. And so let's just pivot a little bit. You mentioned the restorative practices and would love to just hear one, maybe your belief in what brought you to wanting to share this on a larger scale and then maybe pivot a little bit more to then what does your work look like? Yeah, the, the restorative practices, part of this simultaneously started out as a parenting journey and a community journey, and then quickly found its home in my life in terms of how we can apply this in schools and particularly how students can lead it in schools. And so it's gone through several levels of maturation, but I, one of my earliest experiences with it is I was learning about this because in my neighborhood, I lived on the east side of Kansas city at the time. And one of the things we were struggling with is a lower income community. It's predominantly African-American had some really challenging relationships with police. In some areas we had really amazing relationships with police officers, but in some ways we had some really problematic relationships with criminal justice writ large. And so one of the things that we decided to do about it was try to figure out what can we do to keep our young people out of harm's way? What we discovered quickly as we investigated the situation was that the moment young people are entered into the system, they have some type of number or something with the criminal justice system, that every future interaction they have with law enforcement and criminal justice become that much more fraught, that much more dangerous for them, that the likelihood of them having the choice-filled life that you want for them, that I want for them, begins to decline rapidly. And so we're looking for what are ways to prevent that from ever occurring? How can we keep or from taking that first step into the criminal justice system? And so one of the things that we decided to work on was restorative justice. We were really looking at when first-time nonviolent offenders, usually like shoplifting or something like that, Instead of them going through the criminal justice system, can we as a community come together to own responsibility for the circumstance and create an opportunity for that young person to take full responsibility for their behavior and identify the harm that their behavior caused and have them commit to a path to repairing the harm? And if they completed that, a path that all of us had to agree, it's not something they could just die on their own, but we decided collectively in what we came to refer to as a council of elders, that if as the entire council, we agreed that yes, these steps, if taken, would adequately repair the harm, and they actually completed those steps within the timeline designated 
that then the entire thing would be dropped and it would go no further. They would never be assigned a number in the criminal justice system. They would never take that first step. That was our intention is how do we prevent our young people from taking that first step into the criminal justice system? And what we found just blew us away is that when we brought together a council of elders, we brought together the young person who made unfortunate choice, the company or vendor in Walmart or whoever it was, where they shop looking from, where we brought everyone together, we had a conversation, not a demonizing conversation, not a conversation that was focused on what is the right punishment, but a conversation that's focused on what harm was created and what are you going to do to take responsibility for preparing the harm? Because there's a community perspective, what we wanted was children of character, children who were going to make decisions that lifted up what's possible for them and lifted up what's possible for our community simultaneously. And our sense is the crime and punishment approach simply wasn't causing that. Not that there isn't a place for the criminal justice system, but that for the types of offenses that we're dealing with, that this was not the cause for that. that we need to be pulling them deeper into a sense of community, not excommunicating them from a sense of community. And in so doing, causing them to have a gain in character development and knowledge and understanding that they might choose to walk a very different path. And that's exactly what we found is that overwhelmingly over the two years that I was directly involved with the Council of Elders, that I think there's only one of our young people who went through the whole process, completed the process, who actually went on to and be involved in another criminal behavior over the lifetime that we were monitoring it. That it really did create a pivot point for young people to go a very different direction in their lives, to take full responsibility for the harm their behavior created, to take action to repair the harm, and in so doing, finding themselves encircled by a, a community that wanted them rather than expelled and out of that community and into the arms of a criminal justice system that was is not looking for their greatness, but looking for their incarceration. So that, that's what really got me started on this journey. As I began to imagine what it might look like in schools, a few things struck me. One, every school I've been to, students outnumber the adults, like significantly. Okay. I don't know why I hadn't picked up on this insight, but there are more of students than there are of us as adults in every single school I've ever been into. And why aren't we tapping into that? The other thing that occurred to me as I was imagining what this might look like in schools is that we can't wait for children to make really poor decisions and then decide that now is the occasion for that we really need to be more proactive in our approach. And so that's when I started to develop what I advocate for now, which is what I refer to as student-led restorative practices. Then there are two major pieces of that. One, it's restorative practices. So it's not actually just restorative justice circles like what we did with Capital of Elders. It's this full continuum of practices. They're looking at how are we creating a sense of community, a sense of belonging for students, such that when the inevitable conflicts of adolescence emerge, that we have a way of engaging with that doesn't criminalize children. And that when the inevitable hardships of education, because learning, particularly when done well, is often very much a struggle-induced exercise. And we should not be looking for how do we remove the struggle from education. Productive struggle is a part of education. But in the context of that struggle, my experience has been that students with a greater sense of belonging, a greater sense of connection, the community, the learning community, are going to persevere through that struggle and come out on the other side 
with the knowledge and skills that we want them to have and students with less access to that connection are less likely to do. And so that we can't wait for them to experience struggle to then try to have them experience community that we have to actually build that into the ecosystem, build that into the DNA of our learning such that when conflict emerges, we have tools for that, but that live in the context of community that they've already experienced. So when violations occur and where harm is created, we have tools for that, but those tools live within the context. That's the restorative practices piece. It's a continuum of behaviors, not just a one-time episodic thing that happens after someone breaks a rule. The other most critical piece is a student-led. And this is critical for a couple, I'd say really three things that jump out at me at the moment. One, what is on the heart of every teacher is when little AJ and little Kelly have conflict, is that the teacher really wants to sit the two of us down, talk through it and help us process it, and help pass on the knowledge and skills that the teacher has by modeling what that would look like. But the reality is I can't do that because as much as I want to talk to you two about your drama, in 15 minutes, I got 38 more kids coming to my classroom and we got to keep it moving. So I'm just going to tell you two to shake on it, be nice to each other, be friends and move on about your way. And that's what I do, not because that's what's on my heart to do as a teacher. I do that because that's what's the reality of my time constraints. And so the first thing that really calls me to student-led restorative practice, or rather adult-led, is when we train students to lead this work, they actually have more flexibility in their daily schedule than the adults have to be able to actually stick with the conversation. So if it takes 45 minutes, then let them spend the 45 minutes. We don't have the financial resources to create a system where when every two students needs that type of conversation, needs someone to hold space for that conversation, we don't have the financial wherewithal to have an adult available every time that is necessary. But we do have the capacity to have students available and with proper training, they can actually hold, they can actually create the space for that conversation. And in my experience, frankly, just as well as you and I can, once they've had enough practice and experience and training. So that's the first thing is that there's a timeliness component that teachers would do this work if teachers had the time. In reality, if I had to choose, I would rather the teachers focus their energies on instruction rather than focusing their energy on having to process through all these types of conversations just because we're already putting too much on our teacher's plates to begin with. Can we take something off? And leaning into the capacity of our students allows us to take something off of the plate. The second reason that I'm drawn to student-led rather than adult-led, because whoever's doing the doing is the one who's doing the learning. If students are leading these conversations, then it's students who are learning the skills at a deeper and more profound level. As students practice the art of empathy to create connection that can help address conflicts, students are learning to be empathetic in ways that they will be able to transfer to other areas of their lives. This is one of those skills that is in fact transferable that I constantly have students come back to me and say, hey, thank you for teaching me about mediation skills. My mom and my grandma were going at it last weekend and I sat down and I talked to both of them and I used the skills that you trained us and was able to help mediate. But I hear Hear this regularly where students are coming back and they're talking about how they use it with their brothers and cousins and parents and family. And so when students are trained and leading restorative practices, they have a skill set they can take with them and transfer into a variety of other contexts that's going to pay real dividends for them for the rest of their life. And the third reason that student-led restorative practices really resonates for me in a powerful way, even more so than having adults lead it, is because the evidence is pretty clear. That by the time we reach adolescence, 
the primary influencer Stop. has stopped being us and has started being peers. And so if we're really going to have the most powerful effect that we want in the area of behavior, that often that's not going to come through adults saying, hey, do this, don't do that. It comes through these simple words that I pray my students to say. We don't do that here. Like that, that's not what we do here. Understand that may be appropriate behavior somewhere else, but I just want you to know, brother, that's not what we do here. And when students make that claim, when they make that statement with their peers, that resonates in a powerful way that me saying it as some old guy with gray hair just doesn't have the same resonance. But when students make a claim on what is and is not part of their learning community, and they make that to their peers. My experience has been their peers hear that in a really powerful way that frees them up. We're like, all right, then that's just, I'm not going to do that here because I've now been put on notice. That's not what we do here. It's leading into that peer effect of really allowing students to have a sense of ownership, a sense of mastery of their own community, making it there, really creating this liberating experience where they have a say in what is true for their learning community. That's heady, powerful stuff that it's easy to get psyched. All that's a lot more than no, you asked for, but that's the work. It's everything I wanted. I, my heart is palpitating with excitement. And there, there's so much emotion that is running through my veins right now because you are speaking to my heart and mind. And that connection is just a powerful moment in anyone's life. And so I want to keep going down this path, especially knowing that so many of the listeners in this community are like, and how? And yeah. think about what you're sharing is not just a mindset shift on part of the adult. It is a skill shift and a knowledge shift. And so Certainly. what do you do to help get the adults to get to a place where they can give that ownership? Because again, to your resonating, well, a student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. And this is a huge pivot. It is a huge. Yeah. So talk to me. That's about what I, I appreciate that insight. So right now I'm working with a district um, and it's got a lot of high schools, but I'm working with four of them in particular where I am their coach for student-led restorative practices. We're helping implement in these four high schools and we're doing a two-year pilot. And depending on the results that the school system sees over these two years, then the school system will make decisions about do we expand this to some of our other many high schools that we have done as well. And so when they came to me and said, hey, we want to roll this out to all of our high schools next year. Can you do it? And I was like, not no, but hell no. That's going to be a problem. What we really need to do is we need to take a step back and we need to think through what are we trying to accomplish here? And the more they shared what was on their heart to create, I said, I'm absolutely all in. For that. But we've got to do it in a way that's different than what you're imagining. And I get what's on your heart. You want this to be available for all of your children immediately. I vibe with you on that. But from an implementation perspective, that will fail all of your children. So here's what we're going to do instead. So what we've created is a two-year pilot. And instead of all of the high schools, we're doing just four. With those four high schools, what we're doing is we're rolling this out over a two-year period. We have a specific rubric. I can give you the link to it. You can put in the show notes, the manual that I've developed and that the we are now making a district-specific version of just for that district. So they'll always be theirs. They'll always have something that they can always come back to. They won't have to pay some consult, you know, to use the material. This is their material, their manual. 
is they can use in perpetuity. It's really important. I, I hate the idea that schools get captured by a vendor and they have to keep paying money. Let's build the intellectual process, the intellectual capital into the school system so that it always has that. Uh, we're just out of the 12th month of this two-year pilot. The first nine months of the pilot, all we did was train adults. And then mind you, this is a student-led restorative practices pilot. And all we did for the first nine months of a 24-month pilot is train adults. Think that through. That, a lot of people think that sounds absurd. Wait a minute, if it's student-led, how come you haven't trained a single student in the first nine months? But it's exactly the insight that you left up, Kelly, is that if we don't first create a space for a transformation of mindset on the part of the adults, this ain't gonna last. It's not gonna work out. And so I, I get this desire to how can we do this for every single student we have right now? But realistically, the restorative practices, this is a trench of the heart and the mind. If you don't reach people at that level, you, you can't force people to be reformed, force people to be restorative. That's something people have to bring with them. And after they've had some opportunity to cultivate an understanding of the distinction between restorative practice, which is what we're trying to create in these schools, and retributive practice, that which is the norm for almost every other school in America, where the focus of when little AJ uh, behaves in a way that is harmful, that the response is, what harm was created? What did he do? And what is the appropriate punishment that aligns? Now, let me pull out my little book of punishments. And I'll flip the page where it says, here's the appropriate punishment that goes along with it. You'll spend five days at home now. During that five days, I assure you that I will be meditating on what I did wrong and contemplating how I'll repair. No, I won't. I'll be playing Fortnite. I'll be leveling my character in Call of Duty. And when I come back, I will probably have some attitude about it and be ready to get some payback on a situation that I left incomplete when I was kicked out of the school. That is the common pattern that I observe with our retributive approach to student behavior. Instead, then what we invite with restorative practices is, okay, well, AJ, you screwed up. And we instead, let's treat this, let's treat it like a math test. <laughs> Little AJ took the math test. Little AJ completely bombed the math test. As a result of little AJ completely bombing the math test, Kelly, what is the, what does your instinct tell you to do next? My instinct is to figure out why he bombed and help him so he doesn't yeah, again. This is what your instincts probably aren't leading you to is, AJ, since you bombed the math test, we're going to send you home for five days and you can come back after that five days and you damn well better know before you come back into this building. Like you would never think that. That seems absurd to even say it out loud. I think of character development, behavior norms in that same way. And that's all I'm inviting folks to do is to consider that this is part of our obligation as public schools is that we are creating the context for people to be great society on their own terms, to live choice filled lives where they can go out and they can make decisions that really contribute to who they want to be and the way that they want to be in community. And that part of public education will prepare people for that and these skills powerfully transferable. They allow me to be great as an employer, as a son, as a father, and to imagine that we should be frustrated that children show up and don't naturally have all of these schools skills fully developed. Raise your hand if you showed up at school already knowing all of math. Raise your hand if you showed up to school already knowing all of behavior norms. Like the point of a school is that 
this has to be the place where we can screw up productively and do the work. And so I, I would apply the exact same response to little AJ's behavior, failing his behavior quiz. And I, first we have to acknowledge, we gave you a behavior quiz and you clearly failed. And that is unacceptable. We, we cannot allow you to leave this school having failed behavior. Like we, we actually have to do something about that. In the same way we say we can't just let you leave here failing math. Except to do something about that. Now, the first step you have to actually acknowledge as a student that you have failed the behavior quiz. You have to take responsibility for it. There may be consequences that go along with it. But then the next step, and that is exactly what you said, we got to do some reteaching. And the conversation I'd have with my students in math is the same I'd have in behavior. Well, with your hard work and my support, we're going to get you to the place where the next time you take this place, you're going to be able to pass. But you, you have to do the hard work and you're not going to do it alone. You're going to have my support. But you will have to do the hard work necessary to master this math content, to master this behavior content. And then you're gonna, there's going to be another test and there's going to be another opportunity for you to show what you know what are do. That is the concept behind a restorative approach to behavior rather than what is common as this retributive approach. But that is so radically different than, frankly, what I experienced. I was very familiar with the paddle growing up. Like, I, I'm older than that, that is a dominant form of public school discipline experience. This is such a radical shift that you have to engage with adults first. You can't just assume that everybody's going to go, oh, this is a great idea. When it's so far outside of what so many of us as adults have ever experienced, either personally or professionally. And it's probably pretty far outside of what we've experienced, both as children growing up in our households and as parents with our own children. And so because there can be such a huge disconnect, that's why you really do have to spend a lot of time and energy investing in training adults and creating context for adults to come on board. One of the other things we did before we started the pilot is we opened it up to application. All of the high schools in the district could apply, but we we're only ever going to accept three, four or five of them, no more. And so a bunch of the district, a bunch of the high school, not all of them, but the vast majority of them did apply to be part of the pilot and going through those applications was like, who, who is demonstrating the most readiness? Who's already there? And let's start with a coalition of the ready and the willing. Let's demonstrate what this looks like to a high degree of fidelity in these places. And then once we've done that and we've worked out a lot of the issues, we've built out the policies, we've revised the student manual and code of conduct and the employee manual and all those things. Then let's open the door and start rolling out to more and more schools. So recognizing that we have to take a restorative approach and working with our adults as an access to a restorative approach to working with our children sounds obvious when you think about it, but unfortunately, when it's not done is the reason that a lot of restorative work fails. And then people say, oh, we tried that, but it didn't work. No, you didn't actually try that. You tried the pieces of it, but you didn't actually try the whole thing. It's we put cake in a pan and put it in the oven. I don't understand why. I, we put some flour in a pan and put it in the oven. I don't understand why it didn't come out as cake. Because you put flour in a pan and you put it in the oven. But there are some other ingredients that you have to have. Mm. And so taking the time to bring adults along and give them an opportunity to have this transformation of mindset for themselves is a critical ingredient that often gets left out of the pan. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, one, for those powerful analogies from treating behavior as a math test to the flower in a pan, both are so clear and resonating. And I think that the piece that is just really 
I, I can't describe the emotion at this point, but it's making me think about the system. And I think then all of these things exist in the state of the broader system. Like this is one component of how you're changing the system, but then there's bigger pieces that impact. A restorative practices isn't going to happen if a school board is anti-restorative practices. Look, look a school, so many things. And so let's turn to that piece because I'm guessing there's a thread of we still have to change how then our adults who are making decisions on behalf of kids are thinking about these decisions, be that from an analogy perspective of like, the cake's not going to bake when it's just flour and put in an oven. Students' behaviors are treated in a way that is just failing generally, how do we shift that at a greater level? So talk to us about your work on what you're doing on the part of the people who are overseeing the decisions that are being made on behalf of students. Yeah. So the first layer of after we leave the classroom, and that's where a lot of this student-led restorative practices happen in the classroom and unique set-aside spaces where the students really have their own space that they are leading these restorative practices at separate from classrooms. And that's a logistical challenge that each school has to face. But my coaching of folks is have one room that is set aside as your student-led restorative practices room and have students and train enough students so that you have a group of students in that classroom, essentially having a study hall every single hour of the day. So anytime little AJ and little Kelly start popping off, there is a place to go and there's a group of students who are already ready. So that means you've got to train quite a few students because you need enough students who are in the classroom, this set aside classroom every single hour of the day so that at any time teachers have that resource to refer students to. That, and that's a challenge because obviously there also has to be an adult assigned to that room as well. Obviously, it won't be the same person. It'll usually be a variety of different folks. And they have to have gone through the training as well. But all of this lives really at the level of the classroom and the interaction between students and teachers. So the next level up after you leave that is then at the building level. And before you can hope that your aspirations for student-led restorative practices are going to be long-lasting, you have to interrogate what is the nature of the teacher's experience as well, or said differently. My experience is that adults are not going to produce for children in perpetuity that which is not being created for them. If I'm being asked to create a restorative context for students, but as a teacher, all I experience is a retributive context, I'm unlikely to for a very long period of time, continue producing restorative context for students. And so in order to really create longevity in this work, you have to begin to reimagine what is the nature of how we invest in and how do we support the adults who are in our classrooms. And that really comes down to instructional coaching, the work that should be led by the principal and the team of people that the principal surrounds yourself with to support that ongoing coaching. And that coaching should really take multiple modalities, but what that means is that principal and all the people in the co teacher coaching ecosystem have to be on the same page about this restorative work as well. And it has to permeate the nature of the instructional coaching that teachers are experiencing. And so in an ideal scenario, in my district, one of our expectations of our principals 
is a principal will spend at least 60% of their minutes each week of supporting instruction in the classroom, 60% of their time. And so the idea of the principal who hides out office and can never be found, the idea of the principal who spends all their time off campus and in other places that can never be found, like that is a, an unacceptable condition if you're actually going to create this work, that they actually have to be awake and alive and present, not merely in the building, but in the classroom. And the standard that we hold, the standard that can be determinative of whether or not it's appropriate for you to continue being a principal or not, is that you should spend at least 60% of your minutes every single week without fail, actually in the classroom, supporting instruction in some way, whether that's modeling lessons, whether that's doing observation feedback, whether that's supporting teachers in professional learning communities, supporting PLCs, not running them. Teachers should be running PLCs, but supporting, being supportive of those PLCs and those sort of things are a critical part of this conversation. It also means that when adults inevitably screw up, this is one thing I've learned over time. If I've got more than one employee, that means at any given time, one of my employees is probably doing something I don't want to do. Like this is just the nature of having humans serving on a team is that at some point, one of them is off doing something that is, that is suboptimal and they're probably not going to realize it's suboptimal until they're done doing it. When that happens, how we respond has a significant impact on the likelihood of the longevity of our student labor started practices work. And if we respond in an innately retributive way, here's what the teacher did wrong here. Well, let's open up the book again. Oh, here's what they did wrong. Here's what page it says. Here's the, the disciplinary action that takes place. Well, that'll get them sorted out. If we just discipline them harshly enough, that will cause them to be the great teacher that we want them to be. Instead, what I would encourage is that we have to increasingly look at what is the restorative approach to supporting teacher growth and development as well. And part of that begins to uh, inter, be interwoven with the student labor sort of practice that happens in the classroom. I was just watching a group of my high school students actually led a mediation circle. I teach three different restorative practices, community circles, mediation circles, restorative circles. I actually watched a video of my students recorded it emailed to me just yesterday of them leading a mediation circle between a student and one of the teachers. And the conversation was just like, it was must see TV, like watching as the teacher and the student softened into the conversation. Like there's this real kind of hard edge you could sense at the beginning and you watch this over the course of the conversation, it starts to soften. But then to watch my student mediator, like she just handled it flawlessly, where she just continued to create this safe space for this conversation, for them to then identify what are some agreements that we're going to arrive at, you know, that we're going to decide collectively, this is what we're going to do going forward. And then critically, a part of each of these mediation circles and restorative circles is my student leaders have to come back seven days later and check in one to figure out, did everyone honor the agreements over the course of seven days? And two, did that in the case of mediations, restore a sense of connection in the case of well, restorative circles, repair the harm? Was the effect felt? And if so, then we're done. And if not, we may have to have a follow-up circle entirely. But, but watching them in on the video, they did actually show my, my student mediator you think the video is about to cut out and then she popped back on. Okay. So it's been a week later. I just finished my check-in with all the participants and people oh. around. That is a powerful opportunity that is not afforded 
to so many of our educators, just sit down and have a conversation about what's working and not working, both with, with their students, but also with each other. Oh, uh, what, what's working and not working. You know, we're in the same grade span, we're in the same subject. We, maybe I am enforcing the cell phone policy differently than you are, and that's creating problems in your classroom. When do we have the restorative space for those two teachers to work that out and talk about the impacts of my instruction having on your classroom and vice versa? Let's create that type of space. And so I, all that to say, the next layer up of this is the more that we create a space of community and connection and dialogue for the professionals to continually grow in their practice, the greater the likelihood that we'll see a sustainability in this work in the classroom. And then finally, after you leave the building entirely, next level beyond that, of course, is your superintendent, your school, and to your earlier point, you're absolutely correct. You speak like a recovering school board member. acknowledge that if the school board doesn't see the value of this work and isn't willing to modify the policy framework to honor this work, that it's unlikely to be lasting as well. So with just a few minutes left, I definitely, it'd be remiss of me if we didn't elevate the book and talk a little about that and make sure that, that our community really is hearing a little bit of your greater thinking and the book is called Great on Their Behalf. And so I'd love to just have you share, be that a general synopsis or a nugget from that book that maybe ties a lot of the work and reflections that you've shared in this episode. Yeah. The, the concept of the book, right on their behalf, why school boards fail, how yours can become effective, really picks up in the same genre of saying, what is that continuous improvement that can be happening in the boardroom that can create the context for continuous improvement happening in the classroom? And the first step in the uh, five-step continuous improvement process for boards, but the first step in that is pretty much the same, whether it's with students, teachers, principals, or school board members. And it's what we've been talking about this whole time. The first step is a focused mindset, you know, a mindset that's focused on what exactly are the things that I'm currently doing in my own behavior as an adult that are actually making it harder for students to be successful. This is, and literally that very question is posed in the book. It's posed in the workshops that my team and I lead for students, for teachers, for superintendents and school boards is to begin with this mindset shift away from what are all the externalities that I can't impact? What are the things in my own practice that I directly have a say over? That as I begin to replay the video of my leadership, like any effective coach, you think after the game, coach goes back and they watch the game footage. And what's important to be clear is they watch the game footage, whether they won or lost the game. It's not, I won the game, so I don't have anything to learn. Is whether I won or I lost the game, I go back and I replay the video looking for what is it in my adult behavior that may have made it harder for my students to be victorious at the end of the game. That is the first step that I coach school board members on is to get really clear about what am I doing as a board member? And like you, I'm a recovering school board member. What, what is it in my choices, my adult behavior? Maybe making it harder for our students to be successful. What am I prepared to and and like get really present to my behavior. And some of them were intentional. School board members are like teachers. These are folks who love children and want what's possible for them. 
but we all have the same minor dysfunction is that we're human. And sometimes the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so it, it takes a moment of reflection to notice, you know what, this is a behavior of mine that didn't really honor my intention, didn't honor my commitment to what's possible for children. But as I get present to that moment of behavior that may not have honored my desire for children's greatness, in that moment, now I can actually begin to behave in a new way. And inside of that, give rise to a new set of possibilities for the students that I serve. As we wrap up and close out this conversation, again, I just, I'm leaving, my friend likens it to the pit. And it's like, what's in us that we're just like, it's crawling and waiting to get out. And like, I'm just, I am sitting here ready for something different, but being inspired in like, again, I think it's just because my ideals and belief in what is possible aligns so much to what you are saying. With all of that said, would love to just end with what advice do you have for educators right now to have a renewed sense of hope in what is possible in education? The places where I'm seeing educators really weather the current storm of circumstance better than others is where educators are finding ways to come together and really be community, be a network in a more powerful way. It's not that this wasn't always necessary in some places, certainly better than others, but what educators, I have the privilege of talking to all across the country, hear things like, I have never experienced student behavior that is as wheels off as it has been in these years trying to come out of this pandemic. I don't know. I don't have the software. I don't understand it, but that has certainly been my experience as I've looked at the data in my own district. I don't remember it being this way previously. So that there's like this recalibration period that we're still in and the brunt of that lands directly on our children and on our educators. There is instructional time that was lost. And so the, there is a whole lot of teaching, not even reteaching, but just flat out teaching that needs to happen to help support those students catching up the material they lost. The brunt of that falls on our students and on our teachers. And so in a profession that was already a struggle to begin with, there's already challenging and one of the hardest professions out here before the pandemic has placed additional burden on our children and our teachers. It's just, just been devastating. And so the thing that gives me the most cause for hopefulness and that it seems to really be able to buoy our educators in these difficult times is coming together in unique and special and powerful ways, whether that is inside the school day or outside of the school day. Hopefully it involves food. Hopefully it involves dancing and music. Hopefully it involves something that is just refilling the cup because this is the fundamental nature of teaching is you constantly pouring out of your cup to add something into the cups of all the students around you. But in a time when those cups seem to have gotten so much deeper and wider, it feels like you have to do more pouring to get the same, to get the same result. And so inside of that, I just feel like often our teachers are finding themselves more depleted from having done more pouring. Like they've stepped up to do the work that's required, but at a greater cost. And so finding ways to to refill that cup through connection and communion with colleagues, through finding ways, again, whether inside the school day or outside the school day, to just engage in the practice of joy making, maybe even go so far as play, 
with colleagues as a way of helping to refill that cup. That seems particularly important in what I've seen. Uh, educators engaging in those practices really supported willfully, gleefully by their building leaders. That seems to be a powerful antidote to these current times. Ah, I love it. And I just like the concept of engaging the practice of joy making that is at the heart of, I think, life. <laughs> I do a, every October, I do a happiness challenge or a joy making challenge. And when we can have joy at the center of our practice, yeah, everything else seems so much more hopeful and possible. So much more possible. So much more possible. AJ, this has been such an honor and I, you're not getting rid of me. I will no longer, not authority either, hopefully, but somebody who is just like tagging, pinging and following because I know that I have gained so much from this conversation and just feel so fortunate for our community to just, again, have your insight, your wisdom, your passion. You just brought so much and bring so much. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. I appreciate your stewardship of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, AJ, for joining us today. Here are the takeaways from today's episode. Number one, student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. Number two, our children's circle impact their success. It is not enough to raise our own children, but we have to be accountable to the community in which our children and their peers are being raised. Number three, to raise a community of strong character, we need to be pulling people deeper into the sense of community not excommunicating them from a sense of community. Then we must give them the opportunity to blow us away. Look for their greatness, not their incarceration. Number four, productive struggle is part of education and students with a greater sense of belonging, connection, and community are going to persevere through the struggle. We can't wait for that struggle and then build community. We must build community into the ecosystem of our schools so that when struggle is experienced, all students have the opportunity to persevere. Number five, student ownership is one of the most powerful tools we can give students and teachers. We must confront the reality of what is happening in teachers' lives versus what is in their hearts. If a teacher could, they would have meaningful conversations with all of their students. However, the reality is, timing for this is not on their sides. Whoever is doing the doing is doing the learning. Let's give space for our students to learn. This provides space for our teachers to teach. Number six, we must first create space for transformation of mindset and part of the adults or transformation is not going to happen. None of the work that we're doing will last. Therefore, we also have to take a restorative approach with adults must take the time to bring in the adults to do the learn. Number seven, be reflective and ever-evolving. Watch the footage at the end, regardless of whether you won or lost, and be sure to learn something always. Number eight, know that as an educator, you are part of a community, and in that community, engage in the practice of joy-making. Speaking of joy-making, don't forget... On behalf of the podcast and AJ, we are gifting two lucky winners the opportunity to receive a Kindle version of AJ's new book, Great on Their Behalf, Why School Boards Fail and How Yours Can Be Effective. You can enter the drawing by, one, leaving a review on Apple and sharing that review on your social and tagging me. Number two, sharing today's episode and tagging me. 
Or number three, DM me and share a nugget you are taking away from the episode. Remember, you can tag me at Kelly Pomus. Thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.